or to use the terms from this story, to be underdressed or overdressed. We've all had that feeling when we, when we look around a room and it seems like everyone is staring at us and judging us and wondering why we're doing what we're doing. And truth be told, I feel like that almost every week. Preaching like I do is seen as foolishness to those outside of these doors. Devoting ourselves to a book that's thousands of years old is seen as foolishness. Having standards based on this ancient book is seen as foolishness. Christians in the world, we stand out today. It's been like that throughout the history of the church, though. The Bible even says this, we are what? We are a peculiar people. We are called out, called to live in the world but not be of it. We must be different and recognizable from those outside of the Christian faith. In other words, we're commanded or called to stick out like sore thumbs in the world. And nowhere do we stick out more clearly than in the realm of marriage and divorce and sexuality. We hold to a system of beliefs that in many ways stands in direct contrast to the notions of popular culture, that you can do whatever you want so long as it doesn't hurt anyone. That is, unless you hold to the Bible as God's word, and it directs your paths, and then you're just closed-minded and a bigot. See, we are a peculiar people who are devoted to an ancient text and I believe that the Bible has time and again shown us that it is true, it is God's word, and it is worthy of our time and devotion. Not the culture that changes with the wind. So what is so peculiar about this passage? Well, it lays out a standard that most of the non-Christian world rejects. It's also something that many Christians have disregarded or ignored this passage gives us instructions on singleness and marriage and divorce. So let's dig into the text this morning. The first thing that we see is found in verse 8, remaining single is good. Churches and Christian ministries have held marriage conferences, marriage seminars, marriage retreats, Sunday school classes that are only for married couples, and those are good. But what about those who are single? What about those who are widowed? What about those who are divorced? And it's not just singles in churches that feel discomfort. Uh, uh, women who have lost children or who are unable to have children themselves get discouraged on Mother's Day, don't they? Kids who grow up without a father have to deal with the, the pain that happens and the, the daily reminders that happen when Father's Day comes. It's difficult, it's hard. And to be honest with you, churches and pastors have not done a very good job of making sure that people are included. It's not intentional, but it still hurts. But think of all the times that either explicitly or implicitly, the church, and not just our church, when I say the church, I don't mean just this body, I mean churches in general. How many times have churches made single people feel like they're less important? It's common. It's painful for those who come to church looking for encouragement and hope only to leave feeling like they're less than something that they really are. I know women who have difficulties coming to church on Mother's Day because it's a reminder that they can't have children when all of the other families in the church have them. 
And there are single people who I know won't come around church in February because of Valentine's Day. They're reminded that they somehow don't meet the standard that has been set by some churches and the culture. The idea that marriage is good, or at least having a partner is good, and singleness is bad. Now maybe you've seen someone who's in their 30s or 40s and you wonder, why are they still single? Because marriage is the norm for most people, but that doesn't mean that it's the only option. Some people have just not found the right person. Others have devoted themselves to their work. Still others have found that they can accomplish so much more for the cause of Christ when they, not ha- they don't have to deal with the responsibility of a spouse or children. And this is Paul's story. In verse 8 he says this, To the unmarried and the widows I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. The creation account in the first few chapters of Genesis, gives us the idea where God, or it says that God says, it is not good for man to be alone, so I will create a helper fit for him. For Adam, it was not good for him to be alone. And Paul is tying his letter to the Corinthian church in this text. He's saying that God established a pattern in Genesis 2 that man and woman would marry and have children. And this is the pattern that we still have today. Don't think that Paul is contradicting what God said in Genesis 2. Paul is also saying, yes, that is good, but singleness is also good. Paul knew that both celibacy and singleness have benefits that married people don't have. Now, Paul doesn't give those lists of, of benefits, but they're not easy to, or not difficult to figure out. Single people have more freedom to come and go. Yes, they work, but it's much easier to change with little notice. Single people have more time to devote to ministry. One of my first mentors in ministry is a single pastor, and he's given 30 or 40 years of his life to ministry. He can work 80-hour work weeks because he doesn't have to deal with a wife and children. He doesn't have to spend time with anybody else, so he can devote himself fully to the work of ministry. Single people have more time to give to others, and the truth of the matter is, before I got married, as most of you who are married can remember, You have ideas of what married life is going to look like. It kind of looks like leave it to beaver, right? Your kids get into trouble, but not really that much trouble. Your wife after work, you work a hard day, you come home, and your wife is wearing high heels and a dress, and she's got full makeup on, and, and she's made you dinner, right? That's leave it to beaver life, right? Husband is always bringing flowers home to the wife, always giving her a kiss on the cheek, and here's some chocolate. The reality is that's not true. I wake up in the morning at 6 a.m., which is very early for me, and I take my kids to school. I spend an hour wrangling with them, trying to get their clothes on and trying to get them to eat breakfast and pack up their backpacks to go to school. And after that gets accomplished, uh, I take them to school, and I come home, and I I, I get ready for the day, and I come into work. And by the time it's 4 or 5, 6 o'clock, I'm ready to go home. But then when I go home, my, my son wants to play catch, and I love to do that. And then after that, I eat dinner, and then my daughter wants to push me around and jump on me, and I let her do that. By the time the kids are going to sleep, I'm exhausted physically and emotionally and maybe even spiritually. I'm done. I have very little left to offer you. The truth of the matter is that pastors and missionaries and, and church members who don't have families, they have that extra space to be able to serve others. Where people who are married, their first priority is the family. So Paul says that remaining single is good, and he, he, I mean, there's obvious reasons why it's good, but then in verse 9 he says this, 
But if they, the single people, cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better for them, uh, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So singleness is good, and marriage is good. Paul knew that remaining single just wasn't going to happen for everyone. And one of the best examples is the Shakers. If you haven't heard of the Shakers, they are, were a religious sect or even a cult maybe. Um, in the mid-1860s, they had about 6,000 members of their group in 20 different communities. They kind of lived in communes. And among their strange beliefs, they didn't believe in the Trinity, which is heresy. Um, but that's not why their numbers declined. Plenty of groups have heretical views and still the numbers go up. Uh, the Shakers declined because they um, practiced celibacy. As a few years ago, there was only two shakers left. Makes sense, right? Especially if you're not getting a lot of converts, and a lot of converts are not going to the shakers for that purpose, right? So they would practice celibacy, so they went from 6,000 down to two within a matter of 150 years because they all remain, according to the world, single. Makes sense. You don't have children, your numbers decline. See, Paul wasn't a reasonable man. He, he was reasonable. He knew the desire of most people was to marry and have a family. He recognized that it was better to get married than to burn with passion. God created us to have physical desires, and he gave us an outlet for those desires in the marriage relationship between a husband and a wife. Now, how could someone who desires to serve Christ devote themselves to the work of the gospel ministry when they are consumed with physical desires? Therapist and secular culture would tell you that you need to act on those desires. Don't suppress what's inside of you. Do what feels good. Do what makes you happy. Do what brings you joy. Paul says that gets it partially correct. You should desire freedom, but only freedom with restraints. Inside of a marriage is a place where we find that freedom. You cannot serve God faithfully with all that you have if you're consumed with something that you don't have. On the premarital counseling that I've been a part of, and I, I sit across the table from, from these young men, and, and so I look at these guys who, who, who love their fiancé and want to be married uh, to them more than anything, and a lot of them will be honest with me and say, yeah, man, I'm just burning. I mean, I'm burning with passion. Usually they don't say it that way, but that's what they mean. And they think that maybe getting married is going to be the cure for uh, the, the problem that they have with lust. But don't think that Paul is saying, get married and you'll never, never deal with lust or temptation again. He's not saying that at all. And in fact, it, it, anecdotally, it's been my experience that when you get married, actually the difficulties become harder for two reasons. One, because you know that you're tied to this person. And the second one is that, that Satan wants nothing more than to destroy your marriage. Because if he knows that he can destroy your marriage, the impact is widespread. So getting married won't protect us from lust and temptation, but it will help those who are to use Paul's words, burning with passion. So after Paul gives advice about singleness and marriage, and he says that both are good, he moves on to discuss an issue that was happening in the Corinthian church. What to do with people when they're already married. Now we can summarize this in three main points. Verses 10 and 11 discuss Christians who are married to other Christians. Verses 12 through 14 talk about Christians who are married to unbelievers who want to stay married. In verses 15 and 16, Paul advises Christians who are married to unbelievers who want to leave the marriage. And before I go any further, um, I, 
20 years ago, maybe this discussion wasn't had, and I think we're seeing the fruit of this. Um, these verses do not, nothing in Scripture ever, ever advises women who are being abused to stay. There is not one instance in Scripture where you can even get a remote hint of that happening. And it's been an unfortunate legacy of many churches that the pastors have told their, these wives who are being beaten and, and, and abused, nope, you cannot divorce your husband because you have to stick with them. You cannot leave. It's not here. It's never the, the thought, and it's never the advice that I would give someone who's being abused in their marriage, no. Is divorce good? No, it's not. Marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. Jesus is the groom. We are his bride. Marriage is the picture of the covenant that God has made with us, one that is unbreakable. God wants us to take that seriously. And when a husband or wife decides to break the covenant, they do harm to that picture that God has given to us. But does God want a woman to continue living with a man who abuses her? No. That distorts the covenant picture between God and his people. The second thing I want to share with you is this, and this is something that some of you need to hear. Divorce does not put you out of the reach of God's grace. There are always consequences to divorce, and we know that. Kids having to split time with parents, family and friends taking sides, all the difficulty that comes with blended families. And even though divorce does go against God's standard, we find comfort in the gospel. Listen, just like we do with every other sin that we've committed and every other difficulty that we've ever had in life. The gospel brings us comfort. The woman at the well who'd been married many times and she was living with a man that wasn't her husband, what did Jesus do? He spoke truth, but then he gave her grace. The same grace awaits every person who turns from their sin, no matter how big or how small, and gives their life to Christ in the work of the gospel. This is the grace that we all need, isn't it? So the first statement about marriage comes in verses 10 and 11. These verses are for Christians who are married to fellow believers. It reads this. Of the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Some in the Corinthian church were likely seeking a divorce. Maybe they were thinking, well, we could be more spiritual if we're single. After all, this is what Paul tells us, right? That he wishes that, that we could be like him. So if we're married, it's kind of causing all sorts of issues with timing and scheduling. So if we just divorce, now we can devote ourselves fully to the work of the gospel. Maybe they were doing that. Maybe they thought living as celibates would be better. Another reason may have been that the church wanted Someone new or more attractive, or, or maybe uh, in modern terminology, maybe the people just wanted out because they needed something new. They were tired. Paul says that a wife must not separate from her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. To separate was divorce. And what Paul is addressing was not adultery or desertion, both biblical reasons for divorce. The Corinthians were divorcing for unbiblical reasons. And we've all heard those today, the reasons why people divorce. Well, we just fell out of love. We argued way too much. We just grew apart. I can say this clearly, none of those are biblical reasons for divorce, but it happens. Sin comes into our lives and our marriage, and it brings about disastrous results. 
And over and over in 1 Corinthians, we've seen how sin messes up the spiritual growth of the church. See, Paul is writing to a church, a body of believers. He's not writing to individual Christians, though this does apply. But he's writing because he sees a church that is tainting the message of the gospel. They're harming their witness. And the church in Corinth had so many problems. I mean, to, to us today, this seems pretty easy, doesn't it? Like, it's not rocket science to figure this stuff out, but the church in Corinth were so young and immature in their faith that they were struggling. And so Paul gives the church two choices in cases of unbiblical divorce. Now remember, these words are God's words through the Apostle Paul. Remember that Paul is speaking to those who are already divorcing or they're thinking about it. He gives two options for those who've gone through the divorce already. Either remain unmarried or be reconciled to the original spouse. If a Christian couple comes to me and they sit across the counseling table and they say, well, we're thinking about a divorce, um, I tell them that these are the only two options that you have. As long as there's not adultery or desertion there, this is your, these are your two options. Anything else is sinning against God, and not only sinning against God, you're waving it at God, saying, look at my freedom. So those are instructions that Paul's giving to Christians who are Divorced or thinking about divorce. The next, in verses 12 and 14, the next thing that Paul tells us is uh, regarding Christians married to unbelievers, but those unbelievers want to stay married. Believers who are married to unbelievers. These are people who either got married before converting to the faith, and and we've seen this too, that a, a couple doesn't know Christ, and then a husband or a wife comes to know Christ, and the other spouse isn't a believer. Or this could be where a Christian marries a, a non-Christian. Now in verse 10, Paul says that the words were the Lord's, not his. He says this because Jesus had addressed these issues in Mark 10 and Matthew 19. So Paul already knew that Jesus had addressed the first part, Christians married to one another. But then in verse 12, you may have noticed something strange. Paul says that the words that he was, was speaking were his words, not the Lord's. Now, you may be reading this and thinking that since these words didn't come from Jesus, that they're somehow less important. They're not as valid as the, the, what Jesus said. This argument is what many use, those who call themselves red-letter Christians, meaning that they view the red letters as more important than the black. Uh, years ago, I had a coworker who um, said she was a Christian and she attended a church, and she said that she had problems with the Apostle Paul. And I said, so, oh, okay, tell me, the, tell me the problems that you have. And she said, well, he's a, he's a homophobe, he's a bigot, and he hates women. I said, well, okay, um, tell me some more. And I said, but aren't these the words of God? And she said, no, these were words written by men. So she valued what she saw in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John at a point where, okay, those are the words of God, but the rest of the New Testament is not It gave her the freedom to kind of pick and choose what she likes and what she doesn't like. And if it didn't fit into her understanding, her modern understanding of life, she would throw it out. See, the issue was is that she didn't hold to the view that the Bible was without error. And you may be surprised. You may be surprised at how many Christians think that there are errors in the Bible. Think that the Bible doesn't have application for their life. That the Bible is not God's inspired word like the woman that i mentioned they pick and choose passages from the bible they want to follow the rest they can ignore the problem and it's a big one is that the bible is either god's word or it's not 
Those are our two options. There is no middle ground. I believe that the Bible is inerrant. It contains no errors and that every word, red or black, is equally important and equally from God. Some will say that Jesus never spoke about certain issues, but if you believe that Jesus is God, he is, and that the Bible is God's word, it is, then you have to believe that Jesus did in fact speak about these things. Now coming back to our passage, there will be some who will say, well yes, I get that. I believe that God's word is found here and that what Paul wrote was from God in verses 10 and 11, but in verse 12, he says that it's not from him. He says it's, it's not from him, or it's not, it's not from God, it's from him. But that creates another problem that we have in this passage that would deny the entire Bible is God's word. And now becomes nothing more than a historical letter that we can either accept or reject. But that's not what's happening here. Paul is saying in verses 10 and 11, he's repeating what Jesus has already said. And then in verses 12 and 14, Paul is saying something that Jesus didn't say in his earthly ministry. But listen to me, hear me clearly. They are no less God's word. To Paul's knowledge, Jesus had never spoken about marriage between believers and unbelievers. But the truth is, if you believe that God inspired the text of Scripture, that God, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit inspired the text of, of Scripture then you have to believe that the words that Paul wrote were actually from Christ. He's inspired the writing that Paul's writing. So what is Paul saying? He's saying that if a Christian is married to someone outside of the Christian faith, they cannot divorce them. Yes, there will be difficulties. Yeah, it'll be difficult. It'll be hard. There's no way to avoid it when one person is devoted to Christ and the other is not. And this is a question I've been asked too. It's funny how a lot of the questions that, that pastors get asked over the years are questions that the early church was asking too. That's why this Bible, this book that we study is so amazing that it still answers questions that we have today. The Bible says that a Christian should only marry someone of like mind. A Christian should, marrying a non-Christian is not a good idea and some will say, well man, that's closed-minded, isn't it? Let's go to the mosque and find the most religious person and see if it's okay for them to marry an atheist. It just doesn't make any sense. While I don't think it's appropriate for a Christian to be unequally yoked together in marriage with a person who is not, there are examples of one spouse who does convert to the Christian faith while the other does not. So Paul is addressing that. What happens now? Paul says that a Christian cannot divorce their unbelieving spouse. Look at verses 13 and 14. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, meaning that he's okay with it, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. I want you to notice something here. The unbelieving husband or the unbelieving wife is made holy through their believing spouse. This does not mean that they are justified. It does not mean that they become believers. It does not mean that they are saved from their sins. Otherwise, Paul would not call them unbelieving. Instead, it is through their believing spouse that they experience the beauty and the wonder of the Christian gospel message. Think of it this way. A Christian woman is married to a non-believing husband. And, and, and the husband is, is a nice guy, but he's just not a believer. What happens when that woman goes through some kind of tragedy? What happens when she gets the bad news from the doctor? Do you know what happens? The husband gets to witness the church surrounding his wife. 
The husband gets to see the grace and mercy and compassion and kindness that her church family, and, and hear this, church families are often closer to us than our own blood relatives. I have more in common with you, Christian, than I do with my family who's not believers. And so the unbelieving husband gets to see this grace and mercy and compassion that's poured out on his wife, and he's also the recipient of that. He gets to see what a church does. Now this doesn't give permission to go marry someone who's not part of the faith. It assumes that these marriages have happened. And I'm convinced that there is no better way for non-Christian spouses to hear and trust in Christ than through the Christian spouse's prayer, service, and mercy. And this is what the Corinthian church was asking. They were saying, wait, we've got all of these issues. Paul, help us think through this. And then in verses 15 and 16, Paul moves on to the final category. What to do when Christians are married to unbelievers who want to leave the marriage. The scenario is one where a person comes to faith in Christ, but their spouse does not, and the unbelieving spouse wants out of the marriage. We've seen this too. Look at these verses again, 15 and 16. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? A Christian will pray for their spouse to repent, to trust in Christ, to come to faith, and that God will save that spouse from their sin. And, and, and sometimes, though, that the spouse doesn't want to do that and they don't want to stay. Paul says that the Christian who is left behind has no obligation to hold their marriage together. It's an act of desertion. There are many marriages where a person claims to follow Christ, but then they find someone new. I've witnessed it. I've seen it. I've seen the families go through this difficulty. Does the act of desertion automatically take away their salvation? No, because I believe that once saved, truly saved, always saved. But someone who claims to follow Christ and then deserts his first priority to his family, to his wife, and to his children, it shows that they probably were never changed for the gospel. It means an outward appearance, but no real inward change. And if the unbelieving spouse can't handle the faith of the Christian spouse and decides to leave, it is better that the marriage ends and keep the peace for the Christian. I see many Christians see this as giving up, though. But the Bible doesn't give that idea. I knew a man once who was a godly man, but all of us have blind spots, all of us have weaknesses, and his weakness was the fact that his wife had left him. And for many, many years, this man, who I appreciated and I liked, he's a friend, for many years, this man was convinced that he could not pursue divorce or not even accept divorce because he was waiting for his wife to return. Now, it's a noble thought, isn't it, that, that, a, that a wife who deserts her husband and the husband sits at home waiting, we, we, we cheer that on. That's a, a great love story, but the fact is she never came back. And so what happened to this man is he became so bitter and that he became so rigid in any terms of divorce that he said divorce is never allowable. It was always wrong and there were no exceptions or concessions. And he, he caused issues with people in the church because he was so rigid and dogmatic about this. What he did was exactly what Paul warns against. The text warns us about common problems that we see regarding divorce. But it's not just this passage. In the Bible there are legitimate reasons for dissolving a marriage. And there's three really, death adultery, or desertion. 
When the marriage covenant is broken in any of these three ways, the Christian is free to remarry. So if you have questions about this and you're wondering, well, am I free or am I not? Are these the issues that you're facing? And so as I read this passage, I come away with three main thoughts. First, both God and Paul are concerned with the testimony of the church. If the church is doing bad things or misbehaving, it makes God look bad. It makes the gospel look less powerful. If we're preaching a message of forgiveness and reconciliation to God while at the same time doing bad things, the message of the gospel will either be ignored or hated. Our goal is to make Jesus look good, and we can't do that if our lives show no gospel change. Second, we have to take care of one another, even if it means setting aside what we want. This is hard. You may be in a marriage right now that isn't exciting. You may be in a marriage that you feel like you're not getting what you want out of it. Your spouse isn't unfaithful or abusive. It's just that you're not getting what you thought you would have in your marriage. Maybe you're just unhappy. The Bible says that we are to love one another, though, doesn't it? I don't see it written, and you guys can come come up to me afterwards and correct me on this. I don't see anything in the Bible that says that you have to like someone. See, a whole lot of passages about loving people. And to steal a line from another pastor, the fact of the matter is that that the Bible commands us to love our spouse. Well, you can say, well, I I don't really like them, and and, and I consider them my enemy. And and the truth of the matter is, what does Jesus say about your enemies? It says, love your enemies. So no matter what, your spouse, you have to love them. Well, we don't even live together. The Bible says, love your neighbor. There's no, there, there literally is no way out of loving your spouse. You are married to them. You are in a covenant relationship with them. You may not like them. That's fine. Nothing says that in Scripture. But you must love them sacrificially. Love our spouse. Third, the truth of the matter is that divorce is common. Between 40 and 50% of all marriages in this country will end in divorce. So there are very few families, maybe none, that aren't affected by divorce. What is our response to this? We proclaim truth and do it gently with love. Our aim is never to win an argument or to prove someone wrong. Scripture says, let your gentleness be known to all. We don't change God's word. We speak truth, the hard truth sometimes, but we are guided by the Holy Spirit, and we do it with gracious and gentle words. The truth that we need to remember is that there are no winners in divorce. Yes, people need truth. But people who have gone through this need to be reminded of what you and I need to be reminded of every single day. Is that the grace of God brings us great comfort. All of us have done things that we regret. But the reality is that most of what we regret is inside. It's hidden. It's locked away. It's not public. Maybe you've been abandoned by your former spouse. You tried to make it work, but nothing seemed to help. You were alone and betrayed. You're angry with them, and I understand it. We all understand. If you're deserted or if you're abused or if you're, uh, uh, someone commits adultery against you, of course you're going to be angry. But listen to what Jesus says. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Secular psychologists will tell you this, that if you can't forgive someone, it's only going to bother you. It will destroy you from the inside. 
Someone may have hurt you, certainly. My family, I'm, I'm, I'm a direct recipient of this. That I've lived through parents who've divorced and I've seen that this has caused 40 years of chaos and heartache. I've witnessed it, I've experienced it. But part of being a Christian is forgiving those who've hurt you. You know what? The same grace that you and I need is the same grace that that deserter needs too. After September 11th, I, I taught a message to teenagers. It's trying to be a little dramatic, certainly. And I, I said that it was um, right, actually not after September 11th. It was after uh, the Navy SEALs went in and killed Osama bin Laden. And I prayed and I said, I pray that he repented before he was assassinated or before he was taken out. And the look on some kids' faces was, what? And I said, no, the fact of the matter is that my heart is no better than his. The only difference is that he acted on things that I've been, by God's grace, prevented by acting. The truth is that Osama bin Laden, that every terrorist, that every bad person, that every person that's ever done anything wrong to anybody else needs the same grace that you and I do. We all need that forgiveness. We all need God's grace and mercy to touch us. And that person who's hurt you, that person who's deserted you, that person who who has left you, the person who cheated on you, needs God's grace as well. My hope this morning is that you see this as a passage that's more than just a list. It's more than just kind of something that we can have an argument against divorce or for divorce or whatever it may be. It's there. But I hope you see that we are, it shows us how we are to live And how we are to think. We are to behave differently and live differently. And we must think differently. And this passage shows us that we as Christians don't think like the world does. We don't act as the world does. Simply put, we don't live as those who have no hope. These are difficult passages. But every single word of the Bible points us to something greater. Greater than what we experience now, greater than than adultery, certainly, but greater than marriage, greater than all of the relationships that we may have, it points us to the gospel. It points us to the forgiveness that only God can give. And I plead with you this morning, don't leave here. You can come talk to me or whatever. Don't leave here without understanding this truth. That no matter what you've done in your life, whether it's divorce, adultery, murder, it does not matter. Because when you come to Christ in repentance and faith, wiped away. Yes, there are consequences, certainly. But not with God. Your sin can be wiped away. Trust in Christ for your salvation. Would you pray with me?